All right. So hello, everyone. We have breaking news. The Supreme Court of the United States has overturned Roe v. Wade in a historic ruling on the 24th of June 2022, just three days ago at the time of recording. In a 5-4 ruling, the Supreme Court has overturned the previous precedents of Roe and Casey as a result of the Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization case brought forward after the Mississippi state government passed a 15-week abortion ban. Joining me today as co-host of the Elephant in the Room podcast is Bridget Higgins, a fellow Georgetown University student. Thank you so much for coming on to the podcast, Bridget. I'm so delighted you're able to join me today. Why don't you briefly introduce yourself before we take a deep dive into the implications of this historic ruling? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me on today. And I apologize. My voice is very, very weird sounding. I'm getting over a little bit of a cold, but... Yeah, um, I am affiliated with both Georgetown University Right to Life and the 24th Annual Cardinal O'Connor Conference on Life. I've been involved in the pro-life movement for, goodness, probably going on about 10 years right about now. And it's, as a Catholic, it's a huge part of my, just what I feel is my mission in life. It's something that has always resonated very deeply with me. And so it is a pleasure to be on. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you, Bridget. And now it gives me distinct pleasure to welcome Emma Waters to the podcast. Emma and I first met through American Moment. And speaking of American Moment, be sure to check out our last episode with the president of American Moment, Saurabh Sharma, uh, after you listen to this episode. But now she's a research associate at the Heritage Foundation's DeVos Center for Life, Religion, and Family. So Emma, welcome onto the show, and it's an honor to have you on. Hi, Ian. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. I will... To get started, why don't we go around uh, the room and give our initial reactions to the ruling, where we were, what, what was going through our minds, and what we think is, is going to happen moving forward in our country. All right, so I'll start. Um, so when the news came out, I, like many policy wonks in D.C., was frantically uh, refreshing my Twitter feed, uh, seeing if it would be one of the cases. And naturally, uh, Twitter and SCOTUS paused. And I think SCOTUS almost crashed, actually, with the amount of people checking in. Um, and as soon as the ruling was released, um, I had this surreal moment where I was like, OK, we did this thing. And I read the first page um, and then left with a lot of my colleagues to go out to the Supreme Court. So I spent the first couple of hours um, celebrating the overturning of Rowan Casey um, and quite frankly, worshiping the Lord um, for such an incredible ruling by the Supreme Court. That's awesome. And I was actually on a phone call at the time um, and I got off the phone call and I knew that court decisions were going to be released around 3 p.m. my time because I'm recording from Portugal right now. And so I was going to go to Twitter as well and see what the SCOTUS blog uh, would be releasing and what the decisions were because a lot of the major decisions had yet to be announced. And then as soon as I looked at my phone, it said Roe versus Wade was overturned. And uh, I turned on the TV as soon as I could. And I was hearing uh, Shannon Bream actually on Fox News, and she was giving her rundown and reading the, uh, the decision for such a victory. And so that's where I was. I called a couple friends. I called uh, my my mom, who was actually not home, but um, just throughout the whole day, watching the news and getting other people's reactions, of course, seeing all the lib- liberals break down on social media. That's a classic part of anything that they lose this uh, this day and age. But um, just basking in the glory I had um, and uh, just celebrating with friends and family. I feel like out of all of the places I could have been when this annou- was announced, The fact that I was in Florida visiting family at Disney World of all places just made it like, especially given what's been on the news about like Disney in Florida lately, it was just oddly like appropriate, I suppose, because my family and I were just walking through the park. We were just about to get on a ride and I heard I'd been feeling my phone just absolutely blowing up with stuff for the last several minutes. And I finally thought like, okay, I better check this. I better see what's going on. And for the last several days, I've been thinking like, oh, they might announce the ruling today. They might announce it today. And that day I just put my phone in my pocket. I thought, you know what, if they announce it, they announce it. I'm here to be with my family. I'm just going to take a little break. But my phone had been going off so much. I thought, okay, I have to check this. As soon as I saw it, I just like absolutely froze. My brother turned around, asked me what was wrong. And because we were in a huge crowd, I couldn't shout it out, but I leaned over to him and I said, they just overturned Roe versus Wade. And it sort of like went down a chain of the line of everyone in my family. And it was just the cutest thing to see ever, just the chain, like 
person by person by person realizing what was happening and their faces just absolutely brightening up. And like, it was just the best thing ever because I was there with my whole entire family while it was happening, all of us finding out at exactly the same time. And as the day went on, like being able to talk with my younger brothers about it, especially since they're both very politically involved about what this means for the future of our country, for the future of the pro-life movement. It was really just like, honestly, I'm sure for all of us, it's a day that we'll never forget. But I was just so glad that I was able to be there to experience it with my family, with all of us, all of us finding it all out at once, because the pro-life movement, as I said, has been such a big part of my entire family's life for as long as I can remember that it just seemed very appropriate, I guess, that we all found out at about the same time. Yeah. And of course, the whole pro-life movement is about family. And so learning with your family, I think it's very symbolic of what the movement's fighting for. Exactly. And uh, yeah. what I what I think the U.S. really needs um, to start valuing even more. But let's move on to um, what some of the specific reasons uh, the court gave as to why Roe and Casey were overturned. So now I'll turn to Emma and your expertise. Like, what are your thoughts on that? And, and um, yeah, what, why, why did the court come to this decision? Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so in the uh, court ruling that Justice Alito authored, um, the main one, he gave five different areas um, or basis for the reason that Roe was overturned. Um, so I'll give you the five, and then we'll talk through each of them a little more specifically, so you understand the implications that it has uh, that it has from Roe um, and Casey to today. Um, so the five areas were the quality, um, sorry, the nature of the error. Um, so what was wrong with the, um, with the initial cases. And then the second one is the quality of the reasoning. The third is workability. The fourth is effects on other areas of law. And then the fifth one is the reliance interest. So when it comes to the nature of the error, um, Justice Alito spends a fair amount of his discussion, and you saw this in the leaked draft as well as the final draft, talking about the historical basis um, that Roe was decided by. Um, and so in order for a case to be solidified, um, especially with both the Casey and now Dobbs uh, review of it, it has to have a deep um, precedent in our nation's history and in our nation's traditions. The problem, however, However, is that in Roe v. Wade, um, they didn't actually adequately have a historical basis. Um, so they spent the first bit of the case talking about ancient civilizations, um, and then they move closer to present, and then they cited two instances where they were like, I'm pretty sure abortion was never a crime, um, and states actually didn't care about this. Um, and the problem with this that Alito points out is that the two contemporary sources that Roe used were actually later falsified. Um, and it was made known that those weren't even legitimate historical um, occurrences. And instead, Alito spends like two or three paragraphs going through all of the different laws in the 18th, 19th, and 20th century that actually explicitly protected the right to life. So a majority of states at the time had laws on the books that um, protected the life of the unborn child and did not allow for abortion at all. Um, and even in earlier times, they had quickening laws, which was that if you could, you know, feel the child child. Um, so kind of our equivalent of like heartbeat laws, like the moment you can detect life. Um, if the baby was aborted, that was a crime that you would go to jail for. Um, and they even had protections for abortions prior to that. Um, so Alito points out that we actually have a huge, um, a huge tradition and history of pro-life protections for the unborn child. Um, and so under that ruling, Roe and Casey were no longer upheld. And what's interesting is Casey doesn't even try to get into the false history of Roe. They just kind of ignore it altogether because they know it's not something they can rely on. So then the second reason that they gave was the quality of the reasoning. Um, and something that I'm sure you all have heard if you followed this debate is the viability standard. So when is the unborn baby viable or able to live outside the womb? And so the Supreme Court in Roe v. Wade, um, in what Alito and others have called a er erroneous misuse of judicial power, effectively legislated um, specific laws for each um, term of the pregnancy. So first, second, and third trimester. Um, and this sort of language actually mirrors a 
statute or regulation more than it ever mirrors the Supreme Court case. Um, and it is incredibly inappropriate and basically says that at about initially it was, you know, 26 weeks and then 24 weeks um, and even 22 weeks viability as our um, medical professions become more advanced um, viability, you know, whenever the child can live outside the womb. But the problem with that that we're seeing is that children, um, because of our advanced medicine, are actually able to live outside the womb earlier and earlier and earlier, including some instances of like 18 and 19 weeks, um, which is insane and basically shows that they chose an arbitrary number to justify when it was appropriate to have an abortion and when it was not appropriate to have an abortion. Um, and they basically answered the question of when does a person become a person um, without any justification, acting as if a legislative body um, were deciding it rather than a judicial court. Um, and Alito has this beautiful line where he says, if the question is, when does a person become a person, then what about children with special needs? What about adults with special needs? Um, what about elderly people who can't communicate anymore? If we're basing the uh, validity of the life of a child on this viability standard, then we're actually opening the door for euthanasia um, and for legal termination of those who are mentally abled in some way or another. Um, and, and in some countries you're seeing this, which just shows you what the negative impact of abortion has been. Um, and then secondly, under the quality of reasoning, he also addresses privacy rights. Um, and this is something incredibly important, especially for any pre-law people out there. Um, when he talks about rights of privacy, um, he says that the case conflated two very different meanings. Um, so one understanding of the right of privacy, the traditional one, is the right to shield information from disclosure. So if the government comes to your door and says, how many cats do you own? The right of privacy says you can ignore it. Um, but he said the other understanding of right of privacy that was applied to Roe and Casey was um, the right to make and implement important personal decisions without government inference. And those are two very important distinctions when it comes to how we understand rights of, or privacy rights, um, because one means that I can do whatever I want as long as I'm not killing a walking around human. Um, and as long as the government doesn't get involved, then it's okay. And the other says I can shield information that's inappropriate, but actually my actions, whether personal or private, do have an impact on our society um, and should be considered by the proper legislative bodies. Um, and so then the third measure that it was overturned by is workability. Um, and so workability basically means um, can the decision and the logic behind this decision be understood and applied in a consistent and predictable manner? Um, and this is where the undue burden comes in um, that Casey put forward. Um, and Justice Alito basically says, here are a bunch of court cases I can cite in recent years. Um, it's been incredibly difficult to apply the logic of Roe and Casey. It's actually led to more confusion than clarity. Um, and, and this is just not working. So this is clearly not a, a workable case of logic. So he dismisses it on that point. And then when it comes to the effect on other areas of law, um, similar to workability, he said that Roe and Casey um, have actually led to the distortion of many important um, but unrelated legal doctrines. And so it's actually complicated the way that we've um, decided some of our cases since then in a way that's really problematic. Um, and then the last area that he addresses are reliance interests. And so this is referring to... Um, he basically talks about it as um, how we are thinking about reliance interest is basically like the burden it puts on us. Um, so when you're planning something, okay, the answer, the example that he gave was when they assessed reliance interest, um, even in Casey, and they actually threw this one out in Casey, is, is it easier to get an abortion um, or is it easier to um, address your own reproductive um means and methods. And you want to choose the option that has like the least burden on the mother. So Casey actually said, based on reliance interest, getting an abortion is a more of a change than like changing your reproductive interest. So it's easier to like start using a condom to be um, very specific than it is to actually go schedule an abortion. So based on reliance interests, um, Roe and Casey aren't upheld either. Um, and those are the main five reasons that Roe was overturned based on Justice Alito's um, yeah, discussion. All right. So thank you so much, Emma. And um, 
The other question I had is, are other previous rulings at risk? Like I know in uh, uh, Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, he mentioned that other precedents are should be debated now or brought forward, uh, brought forward again. I think Obergefell was one of them that uh, stated there was a constitutional right to same-sex marriage. And I believe there were a couple other ones there. Uh, my mind is blanking right now, but uh, I believe it was about married couples' rights to contraception and same-sex activity. Do you think that those precedents are actually at stake or is that a, an inflated narrative um, brought forward by the left and by pro-choice activists? Yeah, it's a great question, Ian. Um, So Justice Alito makes it explicitly clear in three or four um, parts of his um, opinion that loving, um, so the right for um, intersex marriage between races, Griswold, um, the right to contraception, Einstadt, which also deals with contraception, as well as Lawrence and Obergefell um, are not at risk based on the opinion of the court in Dobbs. He says that multiple times. It's what the dissent um, is leveraging against. It's what the left is leveraging against now. Um, I think like the CNN, like first response. No, it was New York Times. The New York Times first response to Roe, like literally first paragraph, they were like, wow, now that Roe's gone, no more, like no more uh, marriage between the races. It's all over for you guys. And I was like, really? Like, this is the best you guys have. Um, But this is where it comes from. Um, So it's very clear from Justice Alito that the purpose of the Dobbs case was not to um, affect either of those. But like Ian said, in Justice Thomas's concurring opinion, um, he starts talking about the due process clause. Um, So the due process, and and more specifically, the substantive due process clause, which is actually something that he throws out because he says that substantive due process is an oxymoron and it actually lacks any basis in the constitution um, because it would imply that the notion that a constitutional provision um, guarantees only process before a person is derived of life, liberty, or property um, could define the substances of those rights. Um, And that just strains the credibility of even like the most basic user, right? Like it just doesn't work. So he throws out this substantive due process argument. In throwing out substantive due process arguments, it means that cases like Griswold, like Lawrence, like Obergefell, um, that were decided largely on this um, legal basis are now up for consideration. Um, and Justice Thomas it just directly says that. He said, now we're going to need to reconsider these cases. Um, and I'm sure you've seen a screenshot of that uh, floating around Twitter, um, but it definitely, um, so it basically means two things, right? Like one, there are no cases um, in the court or soon to be in the court that have been filed that um, are like up to consideration for Griswold Lawrence um, or Obergefell. So there are no cases in the pipeline, no lawsuits have been filed. So it is not an imminent um, possibility that these things could take place. However, because substantive due process has been overturned as a legal precedent, um, it means that if a case was filed um, and the court were to readdress it, it could change the way that we understand it. And there could be other cases like Obergefell that are overturned. Um, And I think, I mean, you all are college Republicans, you may be religious, you may not be religious. Um, But I think one of the things you'll hear the most is, oh, no, the right is legislating their morality again. Um, And especially when it comes to Obergefell or Lawrence or even Griswold, right? Like, oh, no, these like Catholics and Protestants are here to tell us how we can like live our life. Um, and, And that's, clearly not true, um, but for two reasons. One, there is no such thing as moral neutrality. Um, You bring your worldview and your way of understanding the world to every conversation that you have, whether that is a Catholic or a Protestant um, or a secular worldview, like that is informing your decision. So all of them in an essence are religious. Um, And second of all, when it comes to the way we consider Obergefell, for example, um, so same-sex marriage, Uh, the way you argue it doesn't even have to be religious, right? Like you can look at countless studies about the well-being of children. Um, And we, and myself personally, affirm that the needs of children always come before the desires of adults. And this is the same with abortion. The desires of of an adult woman was maybe not to have a child at this time, but the need and the right of this child uh, comes first. Same with Obergefell, right? Like 
if it is better for a child to be raised in a two-parent um, man and woman home, and we have countless studies to talk about the impacts on its educational, psychological, and emotional well-being, not to mention its potential or not financial concern, then there was ways of arguing and thinking about these cases that actually have little to do with religion and more to do just about scientific facts that we know about the human person. Um, and same with abortion. So in the future, they could be up for question, but right now that has not happened yet. Something I think a lot of us are wondering in light of this, especially as you said, with the fact that many of these other rulings could in the future be up for question, is the effect and the impact that you think that this might ultimately have on the midterm elections that are coming up this November, especially as regards the leak of the draft beforehand, whether you think that the leak itself diluted the effect of the reactions that people were having to it, or if, you know, a lot of people got thought that they had it out of their system or with the ruling, people who might have been riled up by what Justice Thomas wrote, whether that will have a sort of negative additional second wave, or if you think that, especially on the right, a lot of people will really be encouraged by this and enlivened, and whether that will continue what a lot of people are seeing is an a somewhat imminent red wave coming up in this midterm. So I'm just really curious to know what you think might be happening as a result of this and the effect that it might have. Yeah, this is a great question. And this was one of President Trump's concerns, right? Is that overturning Roe could actually have um, a really bad effect on the right? Um, and yeah, so a couple of thoughts on that. Um, first, once you pay six and a half dollars a gallon in gas um, to drive to vote, and then afterwards you try to go buy a gallon of milk and some fish and spend $30 at the grocery store, I'm really not sure that people are going to be as concerned about abortion as they are about the immediate need of needing to pay for gas and buy food for their family, um, both of which are just at inflationary all-time highs um, when it comes to what Americans are paying. And I think ultimately those sorts of errors are going to be the things that guide the voters the most. Um, but when it comes to uh, this question of abortion, first of all, um, like we all know, the Supreme Court did not outlaw abortion for everyone. It just returned it to the people and their elected leaders to decide for themselves. Um, so we have seen a lot of states, I think 12 12 at time of recording that have um, overturned the right to abortion at nearly any stage and others that have um, more uh, better uh, pro-life laws in place. So like 15 week span, 12 week span, what have you. Um, but there are other states um, that have incredibly permissive laws for abortion and are going to be far more permissive than they ever were before. So when it comes to the elections, um, clearly you're going to have people in incredibly blue states that are going to vote for people who um, are all in for abortion. But what we're seeing in other states is actually um, a genuine excitement um, and support from the regular working person. Um, like this is a case that was, or sorry, abortion was something that, like we said, was actually completely prohibited by most states before it. And once we've had a couple of months of these protections being in place, I think people will realize that one, um, their life is not that much different. And two, with the amount of pregnancy care centers and churches um, and even local governments that are stepping up to help support mothers, um, that the harm that I think that they could be expecting is actually going to be much less and of a different kind. Um, so I'm actually expecting it not to have a negative effect on uh, Republicans who are running, but could potentially actually have a really good support saying like, look, this is what we did when we weren't even in power. Imagine what we can do that is good for families um, once we are in power. So I'm actually incredibly optimistic. I don't think that it's going to have a terrible blowback on the majority of people running. Um, yeah, and, and I'd love to see the amount of potential candidates who are actually just publishing um, press releases supporting the decision. Yeah, that's a really important measure that I um, question that a lot of people I know on election side of Twitter and election analysts are really asking, uh, asking and I know that Nate Silver not a huge fan of 538 since they do tend to lean left. I mean, they said Hillary Clinton had a 98% chance of winning the 2016 election. Um, and he said that it, he thinks that it will have a negative effect. Um, but I mean, the left, what, what galvanized the, 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 the blue wave in 2018, at least at the House of Representatives level, was health care. And that's a more economic issue that affects every American. Abortion is not going to affect as many Americans, uh, at least not half of the population for definite isn't it isn't going to affect them in as big of a way 
So it'll be interesting to see if that, I expect that number will go up uh, maybe a few percentage points, but I don't think it'll be like in the 20% range. Yeah. I think that this ruling, if anything, it could galvanize Republican voters to say you elected us and we got something done, even when we're in the minority, as you said, Emma. So having, having, having legislators who are going to stand up for these issues and actually get stuff done, I think are going to be rewarded, especially by Republican base voters. They're going to say, you actually do what you promise and not just say, oh, we're going to cut your taxes and deregulate businesses, which is the generic Republican talking point. But in fact, they're going to put forward a more a pro-family and a more conservative and traditional social platform. But that leads me um, to, the, to the next question, which is do, what advice do you have for pro-life students and, pro, and pro-life individuals who are debating somebody who is pro-choice? How do you convince them? What are the areas that you think have the strongest merit on the pro-life side? And how do we have productive conversations rather than riots on the streets or violent interactions? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And, and, you know, to a degree, um, there are some people that you can't reason with. um, And I think there's some conversations where you have to say, are you asking this question because you genuinely want to learn and want to hear what I have to say as I want to hear you? Or are you just asking this question to get a Duncan on a pro-life person? Um, And, you know, usually they kind of stop and stutter and then they have to make a choice if they actually want to engage with you um, on a real level in a genuine and sincere way, or if they really are just there to yell. Um, and that kind of, that question off the bat um, kind of tells you who you're talking to and it goes different ways about 50-50. Um, the, you know, uh, night of rage that they talked about having in DC ended up being a night of mild irritation from everything that we saw, but that is certainly not the case in all the states. Um, in LA and Atlanta and in other major cities, um, you're seeing just insane riots around state capitals, um, on the interstate. Um, and these are clearly people that are not working within reason or interested in hearing what you have to say. Um, but you well-reasoned students at Georgetown, um, are of a very different sort, I'm sure. Um, and so when you're getting ready to approach and have these conversations, um, I think first thing that I would say, um, is to start with the question of life. Um, our technology, our, our science is more equipped um, and more um, advanced than ever before to actually understand what is happening inside a woman's body when she's pregnant. Um, and so we have 3D um, ultrasounds. Um, we have the ability to hear the heartbeat, to know the gender earlier and earlier. And so first of all, like if you are a, an honest person who really cares about science and really cares about the legitimacy of these scientific tools that we have developed, then I think we, I I always start there. So like, if we have all of this and say like, okay, we know these things to be true. We're able to see this. And then even if you don't want to say it's a life then say, okay, but what if it is a life? Um, What if that, what if that baby is actually a person um, and not just a ball of cells or a fetus, as you might say, then I think having a conversation in the hypothetical So just say like, okay, grant me a hypothetical scenario. Let's talk about it. And then talk about the hypothetic hypothetical reality of the child in the womb actually being a person. And so what rights does this child have? What future does this child have? Um, What does it mean if this child is brought um, to the point of childbirth and actually lives? And so talk about in a hypothetical way, um, because that's a way to get their imagination going. um, And sort of the conservative imagination that people talk about, I think is very important here, is find a non-confrontational way to let them at least consider the possibility with you without just saying, haha, I got you. It's clearly a person. Um, because I think that natural law um, and these sorts of clear expressions um, of truth ultimately are going to resound the most with someone um, more than anything else. Um, because ultimately, I think we crave truth and we desire truth. Um, and even if we're not willing at the time, I think we'll ultimately listen to that truth if given the opportunity. So that's something that I always recommend. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, responding to the main claims they have. So uh, conservatives, you only care about life um, while it's in the womb. But as soon as the life is born, you don't care anything about them. Um, and that's one of the most common things you're going 
going to hear. Um, and, and like, I, I think that's a really easy one to refute, right? So take the Texas um, heartbeat law, for example. They found a way to implement the Texas heartbeat law, right? Um, and the very same day, the governor also gave an additional $100 million to their alternative fund to support um, pro-life clinics, to support um unexpected pregnancies through resources, um, through the literal means of like diapers and baby clothes and what have you. Um, and that was like a huge commitment, not only to the life of the unborn child, but also for the child when they are born. Um, and so talking about like, okay, no, that's clearly not the case there. Um, so, you know, Planned Parenthoods have been closing left and right, um, and their only 3% of our businesses' abortions um, seems to be false, given the amount of them that aren't here. But even before Roe was decided, there were pregnancy care centers um, that outnumbered um, Planned Parenthoods or abortion clinics three to one, three to one, which means there are hundreds upon thousands of pregnancy care centers all across the state in every state who were there to help not only the mother, but also the child um, in pregnancy and to come. And so I think just addressing some of those like basic arguments that are thrown at you um, is huge. And then we can get into other clauses they might throw. And if you want to throw one at me, we can. But I think those are the two like basic approaches that I would take um, to sort of get at a real conversation. Something I've always found personally, since like, especially in what the work that I've done with Geo to Life, I spend a lot of time like tabling and talking to people who have very, very strong pro-choice opinions. I am a big believer in the idea of truth received in the mode of the receiver and something that I've found has been enormously helpful, especially when there's this, I think, very misguided opinion that, you know, the only people who can be pro-life are, you know, Christian Republican types. It, it, that is entirely false. Like, I have long believed that anyone, no matter who they are, no matter where they're from, no matter where they land politically, can find a way in which they resonate with the pro-life message. And something that I found has been enormously helpful is taking on, as you were saying, Emma, that idea of, you know, not only do we care very much about the life of the child after they're born, but if you look at it and if you, if the person I'm debating insists on viewing it on these political lines, say, what would you as a Democrat do? And look at what I'm proposing as a Republican. Ultimately, we want the same things. We want the good of the mother. We want the good of the child. We're just taking different routes to get here. I want to take the route of having the community take care of people because I believe that the communities know each other best. They know their needs best. You want the federal government to take care of it because you think that they have the resources. Okay, but look, we have this common ground we can rely on. And especially when it comes to, like, I see identity politics really get tossed up a lot into pro-life arguments, especially, I think, going forward with the, like, with the ideas that Justice Thomas put forward with other potential rulings that may be at risk that will only continue to be more so in the future, but especially in terms of things like pointing out realities like that Black women are disproportionately targeted by abortionists, that the overwhelming majority of Planned Parenthoods are located in minority communities, the fact that Margaret Sanger was a known eugenicist, and even too, if you listen to like what the big talking head types on the pro-choice side are saying, and mirror it to the language used by so many people who were on the slavery side of the Civil War. So much of it is similar. It's, oh, I don't want this person to be considered a human being because that's inconvenient to my way of life. Oh, this person can't be a human being because then I have to take care of them. I have a moral responsibility for them. At the end of the day, the pro-life movement is doing exactly what the abolitionists at the time of the Civil War were trying to accomplish. They're saying everyone is a person, regardless of what they look like, regardless of where they're from, regardless of how old they are. And if the best argument you can give against that is something in terms of inconvenience to you, and you cannot disprove the fact that someone in their core, in their essence, is a human being, then you're just thinking about yourself and you have no right then to call a pro-lifer selfish.
Yeah, that's just spot on. Um, I could not agree more. And this is what brings up uh, maybe an aside, maybe it ties in, um, is reasons why people seek an abortion. Um, I think what Democrats and pro-choice people like to say is like, oh, it's economics. Like I can't afford to have the child. Um, it'll take away from my, uh, like, it will take away from my ability to care for myself, to care for my children that I already have, et cetera. Um, and while like we as conservatives are incredibly sympathetic to that argument, um, and it's something I'll actually probably get into in a minute. Um, what's important to note is even from Guttmacher, the number one reason that women report seeking an abortion is not economic or financial concerns. The number Number one reason that they report seeking an abortion is because it will get in the way of their career or educational pursuits or um, something going on in their life right now that they want to see through. Um, and then economic usually comes in second. Um, and so I think like even from Guttmacher, like it kind of reinforces this idea that like the pro-choice argument is really based on like your way of life and what's convenient to you and what you want. And we've told people for 49 years that that's a good enough reason to take the life of a child. Um, and Friday's ruling, if nothing else, really reinforced the idea that your own personal liberty and your own personal desires are not actually of greater importance than the life of an unborn child um, or the life of children to come, right? Um, and that there's actually higher goods that we do have to subordinate our wants and desires to. Um, and like, yeah, so like, I think you were absolutely spot on there. You can even see that by their disdain and, and their reaction to, um, I'd say, hookup culture is one thing that I wanted to just briefly say is that anybody who defends this very liberal view of hookup culture uh, really needs to, I think, examine themselves and see, well, if this is what I have to resort to in order to give myself pleasure, what are other ways I can give myself pleasure? Because that's typically how they view it of wanting to be with other people. There are, there are definitely more productive ways of doing so. And that's, I think, one of the big questions moving forward for American culture. And I hope that, uh, especially with this ruling on Friday and in the states that do take anti-abortion uh, measures, that a lot of young people begin to realize that and they begin to value family and value upbringing a lot more. But sorry, to go ahead, Bridget. No, you're great. Actually, two stories, um, two brief stories that I think illustrate what you're saying really well, Ian. So in 1996, um, the now U.S. Treasury Secretary, um, Janet Yellen, um, published an article with Brookings called Shotgun Weddings. And she talked about how, um, and it's still on Brookings' website, you should go look it up. And she was talking about the rise in out-of-wedlock marriages and was saying, was talking about how, you know, in the olden times, and she was like interviewing these uh, very Southern people, like in the olden times, like if you got a girl pregnant, you married her. That's just what you did. You didn't question like, is this my soulmate? Do I really love her? Do they complete me? Which is Brad Wilcox um, at AEI talks about. It's just a total false view of marriage um, and one that is ultimately not actually satisfying. Um, but you just married her and you took care of her. And then um, Secretary Yellen said, well, that's no longer the case. Like we're now just having women get pregnant and they actually, um, and, and she talked about this, she said with contraception, um, and with abortion, which was in play in 1996, um, she said that women are now having to compete with other women who will engage with any man. So it used to be like, no, I'm not going to um, engage in sort of any um, extramarital sexual encounters with you until we're married. Um, and that's sort of my way of protecting myself and also seeing if you're someone who really loves me and really values me. Like this is truly empowering, right? Um, to see if a man actually cares for you enough to want to be there for the long haul, not just for, you know, the three hours night. Um, and so what she said was like, well, now women who were using contraception, who are willing to use abortion are far more available to men, which makes women who are not actually harder to then engage with men or find a partner. So then you're more likely to also use contraception and use abortion. Um, and she was like, man, this is terrible. Um, and she talks all about this and her diagnosis of this is all correct. Um, until she gets to the very end, um, her conclusion, her sort of action, she's like, and because of this, we need far more expansive abortion rights for everyone to so all women can be equal. And you're like, you painted this perfect picture where you correctly diagnose societal ills. Um, and your very solution was just more abortion, more death um, to right the wrongs of society. And one act of violence um, is never fixed by a second act of violence in the abortion. Um, and the second story is um, Wall Street, sorry, the Washington Post last week um, published an article called This Texas Teen Wanted an Abortion. She now has twins. Um, and I think most of you have probably seen it. Um, and the Wall Street Journal 
sorry, the Washington Post really tried to paint a picture of this like Texas teen who realized she was pregnant, wanted to get an abortion. And then the very next day, the six week law went into play in Texas and she couldn't. And then the article was like, oh, no, this is terrible. She now has twins that are seven months old and gosh darn adorable. Um, and the the girl herself, Brooke, actually said, I can't imagine living without them. I like would never want that. But man, I'm a teenager and my life is a lot harder now. But what's incredibly interesting that um, I don't think people have talked about enough is the fact that either it was after the twins were born, um, her boyfriend, who was 17 years old, likes to go to a state uh, skate park and like works fast food job. He was like, okay, because we have twins and you're living with me um, to care for them, then I need a job to actually provide. So I'm going to join the air force so that I have a really great way to provide for our family. And that you get all of my military benefits. So they went and got married at the courthouse. It wasn't incredibly romantic. And quite frankly, it would probably be hard because one day they really do want a magical wedding. And I really hope they get it. Um, but they got married. She now receives all of his military benefits. He's doing an incredibly hard sacrificial thing. Um, and they're provided for. And, and like in the middle of this story, you're like, this, this is what it means to be a truly resilient and admirable human being. Um, and just the simple act of even getting married is going to put those kids so far ahead financially when it comes to their educational well-being, their behavioral, their emotional, like by every measure of like quality of life, um, these twin daughters are better set up than ever before. Um, and it was just by the simple act of getting married. And it, it just reminds me that um, some of our elite elected leaders seem to miss um, the things that are actually most important. And, and that is marriage and that's family and that's sacrificing um, to care for the family that you have rather than saying, well, this isn't my responsibility. I didn't want this to happen. Um, and he didn't abandon her and she decided to stay with him. And that's huge. But I think that really gets it like the culture shift that I hope we start seeing um, with more men and women, regardless of their age, doing what it takes to actually care for their families um, and being supported by their local communities and the laws to support the family as well. Something that I see caught up so much in this discussion is this intertwining of notions of rights, responsibilities, and empowerment, and how there's this real twisting of those ideas when you try to present freedoms as being, for example, rights without responsibilities and being truly empowered as maximizing freedoms according to that definition, basically just being free to do whatever you want. And because of that, you get this whole sort of speaking on two different levels between the two sides of the abortion debate where there are these people who are saying like, oh, it's so empowering for me to be able to have an abortion and go on and have my career. And whenever I hear that, for me, at least personally, it always makes me ha have to like stop and like stand back for a second because like what this woman who is saying this to me is just saying is that for her, it is empowering to have to suppress a part of something that her body is naturally capable of doing, that a man's body can never do in order to be considered equal to a man. And if you have this false idea of empowerment and equality is being wrapped up in what's ultimately just interchangeability, not recognizing you, your own uniqueness, your own distinctive abilities and what makes that special to you and what makes that something that you can contribute to the world and instead thinking about, oh, I have to, you know, consider my empowerment in terms of what it would be for a man, you're dehumanizing yourself, you're demeaning yourself. And you can see that so much, like, how increasingly as time has gone on, like, as you were saying with hookup culture, for example, all these women thinking that, oh, it's the most empowering thing on the face of the earth to be able to have all of these partners. As time has gone on, it's actually gotten to the point where there was a statistic that came out recently that said women actually on average over the course of their lives have more sexual partners than men do. It's uh, on average now, I believe, seven for women compared to 6.2 for men, which is a sh an absolutely shocking statistic, especially when you consider that for so many of these women, the way they keep that up, the way they can convince themselves that it's empowering is, oh, yes, I can just toss men to the side whenever I want because I'm suppressing something that my body naturally does. It is a beautiful part of what makes human sexuality such a beautiful, important thing. And I'm just enjoying this superficial level of it. And ultimately, like, that is not empowering. You are demeaning yourself. You're demeaning the other person because what you're saying is I am no more 
than this superficial level. I am no more than the here and now. No, you are not only the entire course of your life up to this minute, but the entirety of the potential that you have going forward. And I think it's so important within the context of this discussion to really consider how disempowering it can be, especially for women who convince themselves that the only way that they can go on with their lives, the only way they can go on with their careers is if they are childless and aren't in a relationship. Because what that's basically saying is women who are in a relationship, women who do have children are less than, that they can't do things. And that is patently, observably not true. I mean, for heaven's sake, one of our Supreme Court justices is a woman who has multiple children, several of whom are, pardon me, sorry, my voice is graveled up, several of whom were even adopted. So sorry about that. My voice is absolutely destroyed. No, that's just such an incredible uh, and well-spoken point. Um, and especially like if you actually go to um, an abortion clinic, um, majority of the ones, I mean, first of all, like you already said, like most of them are in really poor areas. And second, when you go, when you go inside, the thing that you see are young girls, um, poor women um, and minorities, you're not seeing high powered lawyers, like filling the halls of abortion clinics, right? Um, you're seeing women who probably don't have, um, great economic or career prospects, um, who aren't there because they really want to pursue their education. Um, like beyond a certain point, they think that pregnancy can't get it. Like a lot of these women are here because I mean, quite frankly, like they probably already have children. Um, cause a number of a majority of abortions, I think, um, actually happen to women who already have kids, um, that they're struggling to feed, that they're struggling to care for. Um, and this for a lot of them is, is a misguided, um, attempt just to stay afloat. Right. And just to like, take care of what they have. So when you talk about, um, abortion as this like sort of empowerment, um, and, and ability to like really pursue the dreams and careers that you, you know, feel passionate about. I think it totally misses the point, um, one of what's important when you're a human and two, like the actual face of abortion. Um, yeah. And I think, so tying this in, um, to what you were saying about, um, equality with men, right. Um, one of the best, um, documents we have on this is title nine. Um, and when title nine was passed in 1972, it actually celebrated its 50th anniversary on Thursday, the day before, um, the, uh, decision, the, the Dobbs decision was released. Um, and Title IX, as it was originally done, um, has had an incredible um, impact on women, right? Like it allowed women to engage academically, athletically, professionally um, in educational institutions um, without any unfair discrimination based on the fact that they are women. Um, inherent in that ruling or in that um, rule is that women are distinct from men, but that that distinction is good and um, should be honored and protected. Um, but on the 50th anniversary, on Thursday, they released their new proposed language for Title IX. So this is the draft of the proposed language that has not been accepted yet. Um, and I'm going to read it because I think it actually has a lot of weight to bear on this abortion conversation. So the new proposed language says that Title IX would ban all forms of sex discrimination, including discrimination based on sex stereotypes, sex characteristics, pregnancy or related conditions, sexual orientation, and gender identity. So we're not even going to get into the whole issue of women's sports, women's, women's locker rooms, women, women's prisons, and the fact that Title IX is supposed to protect women and has now taken women out and just said that anyone who dresses up like a woman can be a woman. Not even going to get into that today. Um, but the part I want to focus on is the pregnancy or related conditions. Um, and it goes through multiple times, um, rephrase, rephrasing this. Um, but then it's not until page 400 um, and 60 that it actually defines what it means by pregnancy or related conditions. And it says that it means pregnancy, childbirth, termination of pregnancy or lactation, including any medical medical conditions related to pregnancy, childbirth, termination of pregnancy, or recovery from pregnancy, childbirth, or termination of pregnancy. And then later on, again, says that this includes women who go through anything related to um, pregnancy, childbirth, um, or termination of pregnancy, whether or not they're recovering from pregnancy or not, childbirth or not. Um, and, and so what you're seeing in the proposed Title IX language, um, and, and to be clear, there are multiple federal rules that have been passed that protect women from discrimination for being pregnant. 
whether you're in marriage or out of marriage. And these have been very effectively in play for decades now. So women are well protected under current rulings when they're pregnant. You're not going to get fired from a job. You're not going to, you should not be overlooked for a raise. It's not going to be unfairly held against you if you have morning sickness or doctor's appointments um, or, you know, go into labor when it comes to any of your academic or professional pursuits. But what Title IX now does is include the or related causes, which um, on the left is just a euphemism for abortion. Um, And so what we're seeing now is in our institutions of higher education, the left is trying to enshrine a requirement for abortion that universities without religious exemptions that receive federal funding will then have to comply to. So on Friday, we celebrated an incredible win with the overturning of Roe v. Wade. And on Thursday, the day before, the left was already trying to covertly include abortion protections on college campuses. for every university that takes federal funding. And by the way, that's pretty much all of them. And it accounts for billions upon billions of dollars, like three, 3.6% of our entire budget is the United States goes to federal institutions. Um, it's bigger than most other countries' entire budget is um, to begin with. And so I really want to draw attention to this, especially for college students, um, because with the proposed ruling, they're actually going to then require universities like Georgetown, potentially. It could potentially require universities like Georgetown to provide some sort of abortion care for students. So in California, um, they are all universities in California are required to provide a referral or abortion chemical pills um, at their university health campus health centers. Um, They tried to do that in Massachusetts. Um, Rutgers in New Jersey already requires that. Um, But now what you're seeing is Title IX expanding to include that sort of abortion requirement requirement for um, all universities. And that's huge. Um, Because now every university and every health clinic is going to be a little abortion sanctuary um, if this law was passed and if it was extended this way. Um, So there's still a lot of unknowns about this. um, And and clearly the very vague language, even though it says termination of pregnancy, it's still very vague about how this would be implemented, um, is concerning. There is a part of Title IX that says that there is an abortion neutrality. But when you have new proposed language that comes into play like this, um, sometimes it can actually uh, change the way we've understood other laws related to Title IX. And so this is just another area where the assumption that in order to be a fully fledged woman, it doesn't like it, it clearly doesn't mean that women need to have abortions, right? Like women are equal to men and are provided with the specific care they need while they're in school, while they're pursuing um, professional accolades um, without the necessity of abortion. We've had other ways to care for women, but now Title IX is saying in order to be um, equal with each other, you need to have the right um, to abortion included within this, which is just egregious. Um, yeah, but it's something that I am looking into more now um, and, and really want other universities to be aware of as they're thinking about pro-life measures that are going um, to affect their university or have a negative effect even after uh, Roe's ruling. Especially for religiously affiliated universities, I think that's a really concerning thing because like, right now, for example, already at Georgetown, like the only way someone can get contraceptive, anything like that, is if the they can prove that it's being prescribed for a non-contraceptive related reason. So, for example, if it's being prescribed to treat another condition or to mitigate the symptoms of PMS or something like that, then it is permitted. But something like that, if it were to go through, it would remind me so much of the like the Little Sisters of the Poor versus Azar case, where... It was essentially the same this, the same problem being brought up again, where you have these government institutions trying to enforce something that is directly in conflict with Christian values on these groups of people, on these institutions, on these universities, who should not be forced under any circumstances to have to go against what they stand for in order to comply with that. And I think it's such a sneaky thing that they realize that with the overturning of Roe, there are only so many states that they can get these abortion protections in. And so what they're trying to do is make it be a grand sweep. Then, okay, if we can't do the states, then we'll do all of higher education. 
And so when you get it to that point, then it's basically the same thing for at least that demographic of college-aged women for abortion being legal, because you could be in a state where abortion is illegal, but if it, if you were at a university then and the university couldn't deny you a referral, that, for all intents and purposes, undoes the Dobbs decision. That's a very nefarious tactic that at the end of the day just goes to show that when it comes to this abortion issue, the pro-abortion side really, really is just trying to subvert, you know, legal precedent. They're trying to subvert usual, normal, above-the-table measures. And at the end of the day, all it does is disempower women and make them feel entirely incorrectly so, like their rights are at stake, their freedoms are at stake, to generate all of this emotion, all this anger, all of this lack of proper reason around this, just so they can have, you know, that loyal voting base who thinks that, oh, my rights were protected by the Democratic Party, when in reality, it was just subverting them and ultimately, at the end of the day, making them less empowered than they were before. Yeah, and this is definitely a conversation that can go on for hours upon end. But let me just ask one more question to you, Emma, because sadly our time is running short, is you brought up abortion sanctuaries that could be brought up um, because of universities and this new Title IX policy. What impact do you think that has for uh, the national political, uh, cultural sphere, and also for women as well who might have to travel out of state. I know we see a lot of companies saying we're going to pay for your travel expenses to go to, you know, if you're in Texas, to go to a Colorado to get an abortion procedure done. How do you see that playing out and in, in where the future lies in that direction? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, yeah. And so first of all, um, the future of the pro-life movement both has a federal um, emphasis and they have a state level emphasis, um, like you said. And so on the federal level, that looks like Title IX, that looks like asking Congress to sign the Life Begins at Conception bill to protect life at all stages or even the heartbeat bill. Um, like we'll start, like we'll take what we can get, right? But like at some point, like asking, asking and demanding them to then follow through on the pro-life promises they've made. When it comes to the state level, um, yeah, you're seeing a lot of things. So for example, um, and like you mentioned, California, Connecticut, and New York have all passed laws. Um, sorry, California, they're waiting to vote on them, but I'm not too concerned it's not going to pass. Um, but Connecticut and New York have passed these laws that effectively set those three states aside as abortion sanctuary states. And so abortion sanctuary states are actually distinct from just other states that have very permissive abortion laws, because what they have enshrined within their law is that their medical professionals um, and any of their reproductive health staff, so anyone working in an abortion clinic, et cetera, um, they can perform an abortion on any woman who comes into that clinic as long as it's within that state laws, um, regardless of where that woman comes from. So if a woman lives in Texas and travels to California, um, the state of Texas or other entities in Texas cannot sue California um, because of that abortion. So they've effectively insulated their doctors and their medical professionals from any sort of legal liability um, from another state. The tricky part of this, though, is that only one of the states actually says, but the woman can sue for malpractice or other issues, which means that you're actually putting women in incredibly vulnerable positions who are one already traveling to other states. Um, and a lot of times the states will actually provide a stipend for childcare, for housing, um, and, and for like the gas money or plane ticket to get there. Um, so you're soliciting abortion on a national level to very vulnerable women and offering to bring them in to these states to have an abortion done. We know that a lot of women are um, like uncertain about their abortion, even right up until the moment that they get it. Um, and now you're taking women, putting them in a vulnerable place, taking them somewhere they've maybe never Ever been before, and then having an abortion and giving them very, very little re, uh, legal recourse to actually sue in the cases of malpractice or coercion. Um, and so this is going to be incredibly problematic, um, not only for the pro-life movement, um, but also just for the well-being of these women. Um, and then you have other states with very permissive laws where you could travel. Um, and right now, um, I think Justice, maybe it was Kavanaugh, I don't remember exactly, said that um, in, in the Dobbs decision that like, as of now, um, he doesn't see a constitutional reason why a woman couldn't travel from one state to another to get an abortion. Um, but where this actually gets really tricky 
is with the use of chemical abortion pills. Um, so it's a two-step pill regimen that can um, one like detach the um, child in your womb and then the second one to dispel it. Um, this is actually a very um, dangerous medical um, procedure that you can technically do at home that the left um, under President Biden is pushing for women to be able to do at home that has outrageous health complications. It's actually far more dangerous to the health of a woman than a surgical abortion. Um, and what they're doing is they're trying to provide chemical abortion um, and being able to just simply mail it to any woman without her even having to go to a doctor. Um, so she's not being overseen by a medical care prof professional um, or even seeing if it's a wise decision for her body to try this. Um, and so that's a really big question of interstate commerce laws um, that lawmakers are just starting to get into that will have a really big role to play um, in how the states engage in this abortion issue. Because actually, as of 2021, 54% um, of abortions were achieved through chemical abortion. And so I think with um, Planned Parenthoods um, and abortion clinics closing um, and states enforcing much stricter pro-life protections, um, you're going to see a far greater rise in the use of chemical abortion pills. Um, and so that's really where the future of this argument lies. Um, and that's obviously very complicated um, when it comes to how do you even track it when it's in discrete packaging? Um, does the state have any legal standing to actually stop this um, or not? Th those are questions that I think will probably be answered um, in the courts and in legislative halls um, for years to come. Well, thank you so much, Emma, for coming on to the show. Unfortunately, we don't have any more time. And thank you, Bridget, for co-hosting with me. It's been truly an honor to have both of you on and a great pleasure. And I hope that everybody listening takes these words of wisdom to heart and really sees it in your heart to uh, espouse them wherever you go, especially if you're on the conservative side and stay true to your values and stay true to yourself. And uh, of course, we're always here to support you on campus at the Georgetown College Republicans, Right to Life, um, and any other uh, Right to Life organization across the country. So thank you both for coming on. Be sure to follow us at Georgetown Republicans on Instagram, on Twitter at Georgetown CR, and on all other platforms. Be sure to check out Emma's work at Heritage as she now starts her new job over there. Great work. Uh, I look forward to seeing all, this, all the co great content that you'll be producing over there. And of course, Bridget, I'll see you back on campus in August. Bye, Ian. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you so much. Y'all have a great day. And just to clarify before we wrap up this episode, I just want to make it clear that all views expressed in this episode belong to those of the individual and do not necessarily reflect those of the organization or the institutions they belong to or that they are associated with. Thanks again and see you next time. <laughs>